You didn't hear that, did you? I love it when Jesus goes dark. Gives me permission to relish in some of the more pessimistic visions of the gospel. So every profession I have learned has its version of shop talk. I was talking with Barb, one of our vergers on the way in, and I asked her, what do, what do principals talk about? Barb is a retired school principal. What do principals talk about when you get together? And she said, well, you know, HR issues, stuff that we can't talk about with our staff. And I said, do you talk about, like, the state of American education? And she's like, yeah, actually, we do. And I expect that's true for, for many of us in our professions, right? Doctors get together, we gossip about other doctors and hospitals, and then we talk about the state of healthcare. Academics gossip about other academics, and then they talk about the state of higher education. And when church types get together, we tend to gossip about the people we know. And then, we, and then sometimes we get to talking about like the state of religion. In, in the world. I, I sat down this week with a friend of mine who is the development director at an Episcopal school. He himself was raised Catholic and I think identifies as spiritual but not religious. He's not, you know, an, an every church Episcopalian, but a bystander to the state of the Episcopal church because he works for an Episcopal institution. And we got to talking about, like, the state of the institution, the future of the church. In our, in our world, it's the Episcopal church since that's the institution that pays both of our salaries and we're rather invested in what happens to it. And he asked me, Nathan, where do you see the Episcopal Church in 50 years? And I was a little bit surprised at the words that came out of my mouth. I said, honestly, Andrew, I'm not sure there's going to be an Episcopal Church in 50 years. And then I had to kind of back up a little a minute and, and explain both to him and to myself like what I thought I meant by that. Because um, the words kind of shocked me when they came out of my mouth. But I said, you know, I'm not 100% <laughs> sure there's going to be an America in 50 years. I'm not sure that there's human beings living on the planet in 50 years. If the last couple of years have taught me anything, it is that no institution in our world is stable or fixed or inevitable. And I think Episcopalians have had a pretty good run. I do believe in the roots of this thing, right? I think, I hope the prayer book survives. I love the prayer book. I think the hymns survive. I don't think Christianity is going anywhere. People are going to be reading their Bibles and asking questions. People will, I imagine, continue to sing and pray and celebrate the sacraments. I don't think any of that goes away. I think Trinity Cathedral is around for a while. We're a pretty resilient place. But I'm not sure that the, you know, the Foreign and Domestic Mission Society of the Protestant Episcopal Church in the United States of America, that's our legal institutional name, I'm not sure that that thing, I mean, you know, the numbers are shrinking, the demographics don't look good. Certainly there are days when I think I can probably do my job a little bit more effectively without all the hand-wringing and politics that come with propping up a decaying institution. And then I stopped myself and said, you know, of course, <laughs> a little shamefacedly, I really hope the institution exists long enough to pay out my retirement pensions, which is really what it comes down to, right? It's all, it's all fun and games, right? Speculating about the fall of the temple. Jesus says, truly, I tell you, not one stone will be left on another. And of course, they want to know, right? When is this, this going to happen? What are the signs? Tell us in advance so that we can start squirreling away an alternative financial plan for when the whole apple cart goes up in smoke. I mean, in the end, it all comes down to retirement benefits, doesn't it? it. <laughs> so this fancy theological word for the, the vision of the end times that Jesus is painting in his, you know, prediction of the destruction of the temple, this time of mass social chaos and famine and war and plague and disaster, the fancy name for that kind of vision is apocalypse. That's a great word to use on a plane when somebody tries to chat you up next, next to you in the airplane. See, if somebody finds out I'm a priest, they're like, oh, talking about it. And all I have to do is like drop the word eschatology or apocalypse or Christology.
technology, and the conversation is done. I put my AirPods in, and I ride in peace. So apocalypse, a great word to you know, throw around in a conversation. All that that word means is unveiling, right? Something that is being revealed. That's what the apocalypse does. It reveals something. It unmasks a reality that has been maybe hidden for a time, but is now finally beginning to come to light. And we, we heard a vision, a version of Apocalypse in the prophet Malachi this morning, right? Malachi's vision of the Apocalypse is all about God coming down in a day of vengeance to judge the unrighteous and reward the righteous. Some people are vindicated, some people are thrown into the oven. And then we get Jesus' version, at least as the gospel writer Luke records it, which is actually very different in some ways than Malachi's version. Luke's Jesus is far less interested in a day of vengeance where God vindicates some people and casts other people onto the fire. For Jesus, the end of the world, the apocalypse, the great unveiling, is something that we all experience together. And it's something that you can't really prepare for until it starts happening. Less an opportunity for vindication. For Luke's Jesus, the apocalypse actually is an opportunity to practice endurance. You gotta live through this thing. Because for Jesus, the apocalypse is just the beginning. It's just the first movement, if you like, of this much larger symphony that God is writing. It's the beginning of something, not the end. By your endurance, he tells his followers, by your endurance, when everything goes, you know, haywire, by your endurance, you will gain your souls. Endurance is the great theological note that Luke sounds in his particular vision of what the end of the world looks like. And it's worth remembering that this vision Luke paints of the temple being destroyed was probably written down after it had already happened. The people who compiled this text, we think, probably saw the Jerusalem temple destroyed in their lifetime by the Roman army right around the year 70. That was about 40 years after Jesus died. So maybe Jesus predicted this thing. I, I suspect that he probably did. I think Jesus was an apocalyptic preacher. I think he was very interested in what happened when the world falls, f fell apart because he was seeing the early signs of that mass social unrest and decay. That context, I think, frames just about everything Jesus did and said. So 50, 60, 70 years later after his death, Luke and his community are living through what they believe to be the end of the world, right? They're experiencing what it feels like to be called before kings and magistrates. They are experiencing war and famine and persecution. They're probably a small, persecuted community living on the edge of an empire that is melting down around them. So they've seen the death of governments. Right? They've seen the destruction of their world, the slow and wrenching decay of a global empire, and they are standing in the ruins now, trying to figure out how much worse is it going to get? And the answer is, it gets worse. Trying to figure out, what do we do next? What do you do when you are living through the end of your world? And they say, by our endurance, we are gaining our souls. That is Luke's testimony. That is his great note of hope as he watches his world fall apart a little more every day. We're learning how to make it through, he says. We take nothing for granted. And also, we do not live in fear. We are not hoarding supplies and piling up toilet paper in our basements. We are living lives of radical open generosity, a kind of radical poverty. Remember, Luke is one of the writers who puts into Jesus' mouths the words, sell everything you have and give it to the poor. 
I mean, I want to put that dictum right next to this vision that he is painting of the end of the world, this great unveiling. When the world is falling apart around you, he says, when you can take nothing for granted, that is the time to discover what it looks like to live a completely unencumbered life, a life that is not encumbered by the human urge to protect and hoard. Don't worry about what you're going to eat. Don't worry about what's going to happen tomorrow. You know, give it all away today because tomorrow you're probably going to be called before a court and executed. These are people who are living on the knife edge of disaster. And they are some of the most joyful people you can find in Scripture. That is astounding to me. They say the end is here. The world is bad and it's going to get worse. And we lift up our hearts and sing. Because nothing is fixed, nothing is certain. We're living through the worst of it. We are gaining our souls. We have never felt so free. There's a preacher I admire who said once, when you lose something you never thought you were going to lose, when the one thing you put your confidence in is gone, when you thought you were the people that were speaking the truth turned out to be false prophets, that is the time for a fresh hearing. That's what Luke is doing, I think. He's giving a fresh hearing. And this is where his community finds hope in the midst of a world that is falling apart all around them. They say, this is the time for the fresh hearing. This is when we, find, when we start to find out what God is actually capable of. And the way they do that, I think we find it in the Psalms. They start singing a new song. That's what the psalmist writes, right? We chanted it just a minute ago. Sing to the Lord a new song because God has done marvelous things. I think that's where their joy and their hope comes from, this, this freedom and exultation in disaster that I see in this community. Sing to the Lord a new song when the one thing you put your confidence in is gone. That's when you are free. That's when you lift up your voice and start shouting to the skies, God is amazing. I mean, we sang a version of this this morning, right? The words that we sang coming down the aisle. That's a new song that dates to, I mean, 1974, which is recent for Episcopalians, right? But that, that hymn goes, new songs of celebration render to him who has great wonders done. It's a hymn that is actually, I think, describing a kind of an apocalypse, a joyful apocalypse, the kind that Jesus evokes, not the doom and gloom version of God's judgment and destruction that Christian churches have been trafficking in for centuries. You know Jonathan Edwards, sinners in the hands of an angry God. We're not going there. What this hymn says is God has, is doing something amazing. God has made known God's great salvation, which all God's friends with joy confess. God has revealed to every nation his everlasting righteousness. That's an unveiling, right? That is describing an apocalypse. And somehow this is supposed to be good news. The end of the world, somehow, is meant to make us sing. I mean, I could be wrong about this, right? My sense, it's not quite as sharp as it was, you know, but like a week ago, it kind of felt to me like we were teetering on the end of democracy. And I don't know, like some of us sitting in this room, we might live to see the end of our democracy. We might live to see the end of America. I think we're playing a long game here. I didn't think it mattered to me as much until I... I was uh, at the opening of the Oregon Symphony earlier this fall, and by long-standing tradition, every time the symphony opens a season, you know, we begin with the national anthem, everybody's invited to stand, and usually that moment feels to me kind of, you know, jingoistic and a little, I don't know, a little awkward, but we all stood up. I mean, after two years of pandemic, everything we've been through, and that crowd sang the Star-Spangled Banner, 
And I had to stop halfway through because I was getting so emotional. Like, it really moved me. And I think that was about a lot of things. But it was about endurance, right? It was like, oh, we're still here. We're still standing after everything that's happened over the past couple years. We still sing this song. And there was something so moving to me about claiming a vision of what it means to be America. What I discovered is that, like, I love this country. I love what she stands for. I love what the ways in which she um, can do something so incredible despite all of the trials and the weird stuff that we get wrong all the time. I mean, there is such promise to me in a room full of strangers standing up and singing. I mean, it really, it really moved me. And I think that's a little bit of Luke's hope too, right? Without pinning our hopes on the longevity of any particular institution, Jesus says, you know, you can't, you can't practice for this. You can't prepare anything in advance. Make up your minds, he says, not to prepare in advance. Sing to the Lord a new song does not mean write a fresh new anthem and then store it in a desk drawer for when you might need it, right? Sing to the Lord a new song, I think, means learn how to improvise because the day is coming when all of your hymnals will be gone. You got a little bit of a taste of that this morning. Those of you who heard Katie's um, magnificent prelude at the beginning of this service, that happened because our original plan got uh, sidetracked and she showed up in, the, in this actually about five minutes before the service and said, hey, I'm going to be doing moonbeams as a prelude. That's our code for like when she just improvises on stuff, doesn't have music in front of her. I'm going to be doing moonbeams. Is there anything that like you're talking about? Like, should I set up for that? I was like, oh, well, I'm going to talk about new songs of celebration. I'm going to talk about like the end of the world. And she's like, awesome, okay, I can improvise on that. <laughs> So what she just did, I think, is what Jesus is talking about. Prepare nothing in advance. Instead, work on your skills as an improviser so that when the time comes, when the prelude falls apart, and you got to just sit down and play something, the song is there. I mean, if you've ever seen an actor improvise, if you've ever seen Katie improvise, if you've ever seen a really amazing musician just improvise, it, it's not that they're just coming up with it on the spot. It's that they actually have prepared for that moment by practicing instincts, by learning melodies, learning keys, figuring out how you can just sit down at a keyboard and start playing. And what you create is music. That is what Jesus is talking about, I think. Jesus is saying, in that moment, when your world falls apart, you will not have access to all the stuff you think you need. It's a moment of great terror. It's a moment of great freedom. Don't prepare in advance. The song will be given to you. I think that is an incredible statement of hope. I think that's an incredible statement of resilience. Some of you know, I spend, I spend time thinking about what happens when the big one happens, right? They've been predicting it for years, that at some point in our region of the world, the horrible earthquake happens, everything gets leveled, our muck is all the, mud is what we get, apparently, in this part of the world. And I think, I mean, first of all, I think, like, God, I hope I don't survive it, because I think the aftermath of that thing is worse than actually surviving the quake. But if, if I'm still here, I sometimes think, like, gosh, I mean, if Trinity Episcopal Cathedral falls to the ground tomorrow, I hope it doesn't happen, but I don't know. We're living in weird times. Anything can happen. I think if we've learned anything over the past couple years, it's that anything can happen. And what I've learned about this community is that you are actually remarkably capable of making church happen when everything else goes haywire. So I think we actually know how to do this. I suspect we know better than we think we do how to improvise church, 
if it comes to that. I think you start discovering that there are verses of psalms, verses of scripture, prayers that are so deeply knit into your body that you didn't even know they were there. But that in that moment, when the mic is thrust in your face, when all of your adversaries are marshaled around you, I mean, when you are standing before a king or a magistrate or a police officer or a judge and asked to make a defense of the hope that is within you, my sense is actually, we know what we're doing. There is a song that was planted in your heart, planted in your body, before you ever opened your mouth to breathe. And in your last moment, right, which is a little bit of an apocalypse, in that last moment, I believe that with that last exhale comes this, the song, the song of your life, the song that you didn't even know was there. Jesus says, by your endurance, you will gain your soul. I think that song is your soul. I think that's how we build a soul, through a lifetime of learning how to improvise so that in that horrible, terrible, beautiful, freedom-filled moment when we take that last breath, what comes out is this magnificent song. It's a gift from God. By our endurance, we learn how to sing. <laughs>